Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Hey everybody, good morning. Great to see you. It's a beautiful day, a wonderful day. Oh, love it. Great weekend here. So thanks to everybody who served at Harvesters, the, the food drop we did here yesterday. Uh, dozens of Rockbrook people serving hundreds of people in our community. That's so kind of you to do that. You may not even know that happened. They came in, set it all up, served everybody, took it all down. So appreciate that. Thanks to uh, all those who are going to serve next weekend, one of our five Easter services starting Friday night, starting this Friday night. Grateful for the opportunity to celebrate Easter together, and I'm excited to bring an Easter message next week, and uh, appreciate the worship team singing Hosanna this Palm Sunday weekend. Hosanna in the highest is a phrase that appears during Jesus' entry into Jerusalem a week before his resurrection. A crowd of people were crowded around the gate uh, watching Jesus enter into the city, enter into Jerusalem, and they were celebrating that he was arriving, and they were waving palm branches, calling out Hosanna, which means saving one or save now. They were acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, and their shouts of Hosanna in the highest were indicating that their Messiah had finally come to set up God's kingdom then and there and save them. And Jesus received that praise because he had shown up to save them. And he certainly is the Messiah, the saving one. However, the salvation that the people of Jerusalem wanted that day was not spiritual. It was political. It was society-driven. They were interested in a temporary worldly fulfillment about the prophecies of Jesus. They chose not to see the prophecies that said he would be a man of sorrows and bear the griefs of his people and be crushed for their sin. The peace they were looking for, we are still looking for. It's the final fulfillment of the second coming. That's when it happens. That God in his grace has waited so that he could make a way for us to be saved. So that when he returns, he can make all things right, bring peace to the world, that we can be a part of it. We can be saved. God provided a sacrifice for sin at the end of that week. Salvation from the bondage of sin. It was brought at a great cost, and the result is salvation extended into eternity, and that far outweighs any temporary benefits we could experience in this world. This is why Jesus would often clarify in the Gospels, one place is in Matthew 10. I've got a few things for you before we hit and track with your notes today. Uh, but in Matthew 10, Jesus makes a statement that is confusing to many. Uh, it's, it's powerful. It's serious. Uh, today's message is serious. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, 
a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody, right? <laughs> he says, I did not, do not suppose I came to bring peace. Well, isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? Yes, but that peace right now is between man and God. Those who reject God, the only way of salvation through Jesus Christ, those who reject that will find themselves perpetually at war with God. There is not peace. But those who come to Jesus will find themselves at peace with God because of Christ's sacrifice. We are restored to a relationship with God. And this was very uh, literal very real to the people he was speaking to. He says uh, he came to bring a sword, not a literal sword. In fact, he rebuked one of his followers when uh, they pulled a sword, but he's bringing a sword that would divide. And that's very real for the people he's talking to. The people in this environment, if you were to acknowledge Christ, you could lose your life. And your family may be the very ones uh, to take your life or to turn you in for believing in Jesus. Followers of Jesus lost their lives. That was a reality. And today, in our world, that's true for many environments around the world. That if you acknowledge Jesus Christ, you are hated by your family. And today, in our environment, believing in Jesus is still at least dividing relationships because Many who choose to follow Christ um, are mocked by their family, disregarded by their family, or it causes problems. But there, I'll tell you, there are problems in your family that would not be as big if you did not believe in Jesus. It comes at a cost. It causes issues. It divides relationships and families. And this is, uh, it's... You're following Jesus, his word, his values, his teaching, the Bible. Someone in your family rejects it or part of it. What do you decide to do? And when we choose Christ, we find ourselves, we find our lives in return for having given them up to him. It's worth it. But what do you do when someone turns from Christ? What do you do when they turn from the truth? And many uh, will decide, well, I'm just going to live for myself only I can judge me and what's right and what's best for me. And you don't have any place telling me uh, what's right, what's true, what's wrong. Many decide God is unnecessary. They say, I don't need him in my life. That's secularism, by the way. Secularism, don't miss this. Secularism isn't there is no God. Secularism is I removed him from every part of my life. And we have systematically removed God from most areas in our culture and society now. And it's relegated to an hour on Sunday. That's secularism. I don't need God. Or what's true for you may not be true for me, but what's right for you may not be right for me. Nobody can say what's right and wrong. It comes up in a lot of familiar face, or phrases. It, it comes up in familiar faces too, but I'll, uh, I digress. It doesn't matter... What you do, as long as you're sincere, 
doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. But we all know that someone can sincerely believe something and be wrong. Then there are those who would say, um, well, just be a good person. But who decides what a good person is? People say, just be kind. Who decides what kindness is? God gives us truth. God gives us truth. God is honest. So when we are dishonest, it's wrong. God is faithful. So when we are unfaithful, it's wrong. God is just. When we are unjust, it is wrong. God is loving. When we are unloving, it is wrong. When we are different from the character of the creator who made us, it's wrong. When we are like the character of the creator who made us, it's right. That's how you decide what's right and wrong. That's how you decide what truth is. On your notes, how do I know when something is just truth or just an opinion? Could have done a whole message of this. I'm just trying to create some framework for truth today. Number one is truth is universal. If it's true, it applies to everyone, everywhere, around the world, and every culture. If it does not apply to everyone, everywhere, it's not truth, it's an opinion because truth is universal. It applies to uh, the rich and the poor, it applies to every nationality, every heritage, every person. Number two, truth is unchanging. It's, it's always the same, it doesn't change. For instance, if adultery was wrong 4,000 years ago, it's wrong 2,000 years ago, it'll be wrong 2,000 years from now. Doesn't matter what anybody else says, truth is unchanging. And truth is universal. And the information, I mean, we might have more history or more information, but it doesn't change the truth. Jesus, this is why he could confidently say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is just so confident in this. I'm not a way. I don't think I know the truth. I don't think I am the truth. I am the truth. No one can come to the Father except through me. He didn't, he is so confident in this because he knows the truth. It's why we celebrate Easter, because he showed us the truth. He made a way for us, and he offers life to the full and eternal life through him. We find the truth of this in scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Praise God, it shows us what is true, what is wrong, what is right. Just because someone turns from it, that doesn't change the truth. And just because someone falters or fails, that doesn't change the truth. Just because a, a prominent Christian leader might falter or fail, that doesn't change who God is, that doesn't change what the truth is, who Jesus is, his word. And as a pastor, I see the, the hurt and heartbreak that happens in a family when one family member chooses a lifestyle that reje rejects truth and impacts everyone else. Some of the deepest hurts we can experience come from those closest to us. Our spouse, our children, our relatives, or others very close to us, they, they can be ungrateful, unkind, unfaithful. The story we're going to look at today is one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's a story that gives hope for the hurting. 
We see three stages in this story of when someone turns from the truth. Stage one is rebellion. It always begins in a rebellion. And this is the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. It's in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to, be filled, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. Here you see a young man, that, and this, you see this in every parent-child relationship, that there's going to be a struggle for control. And here we have a classic confrontation, Father, give me. That's the root of rebellion. If I could just do as I please, give me uh, my rights, if I could just be my own boss, if I didn't have to answer to anyone in life, life would be great. Rebellion is unpredictable. He had two sons. They are radically different. Both of them had problems, though. This father uh, did three different difficult actions, even in this unpredictable thing. There's no indication the father did anything wrong. And that's just how it goes. It's unpredictable. You see this in Scripture. You see this in life. Wonderful parents do almost everything right. Their kids rebel. I, I think... This father is a model for us because this parable represents God and God is the perfect father. What do you do when you can't control someone in your life? They turn from you. They turn from God. They turn from the truth. And they're going to live in a lifestyle that is the opposite of what you want them to do. The father did three things during this stage of the son's rebellion. It's number one, he let him go. You let them go. The younger son set off, and the father did not chase him at this time. Let's again, let's be very clear who we're talking about today um, and the context of, of this sermon. We are not talking about a kid or a teenager who needs direction or discipline. Kids and teenagers' brains are still growing and developing. Honestly, my brain was still developing way into my 20s. Looking back, whoa. <laughs> and this is why kids and teenagers, uh, they need parents. They need adults in their lives because they, they do not know what's right, what's wrong, what's true. And we need one another for that. We're also not talking here about a friend who is making a wrong decision and needs to be uh, confronted with wisdom and guidance. And we are not talking about someone who is uh, just wandering in their faith and needs to be brought back, brought back in. This is someone who's making a decision to turn from the truth and is making a decision not to believe or follow Jesus Christ and, and his word or part of his word. And this person's rejecting God, rejecting you, rejecting the Christians in their life. And this, of course, seemed foolish to the Father, I mean, no doubt he tried to reason with him, but to no avail, and the young man was determined to leave. 
the father let him go. And this is crucial because how often do we see that someone will have convictions about what is true, what is right, what is wrong, but then when a family member or someone close to them decides differently, the person who believed what is true budges and and they yield their convictions to the one who is struggling. They end up turning from the truth themselves because someone close to them has and they don't know how to let go. So you let them go. He, He let his son go and make that decision. Number two, he let him make his own mistakes. You let them make their own mistakes. He squandered his wealth in wild living. He took everything his dad had given him and blew it. He wasted it. At first, it's great. It's a party. It's wonderful. He's probably trying and tried everything that he's ever wanted to do, even the stuff that was forbidden at home. He's out having a good time, living it up. He tosses his parents' values to the wind and rejects their background, has a great time, but he wasted his wealth. Rebellion is always a waste of life. Do you think that the father knew his son was going to waste the money? Sure, yes. Do you think he knew his son was headed for trouble? Sure. The father realized that there's some things some people can only learn through pain. And it's hard to let someone go. It's hard for them to let them experience their own mistakes. And the hardest of all is number three, let them reap the consequences. There's a price tag for rebellion. It says after he spent everything, there's a price tag for rebellion. Scripture says what you sow, you will reap. Uh, the party is over. He is broke. He's friendless. He hits bottom. He has empty pockets, empty stomach, empty life. His friends and family, just imagine the situation. Put yourself there. The friends and family feel bad for him. They probably felt embarrassed. A wealthy farmer's kid is living like this. On top of that, he's working with pigs, which for a kosher Jew, that's about as low as you can go. He couldn't, you couldn't even eat pork, much less touch the pigs or work with them. And here's the kid tending to pigs. How do you think that fit into their their culture? They were embarrassed. And there's probably self-condemnation happening here. Where did we go wrong? What did we do? What should have we done differently? But the fact is, you're not the only influence in your spouse's life, in your child's life, in that person you're sponsoring's life in that friend's life. And there's a lot of false guilt, a lot of unjustified condemnation. There are forces that are beyond your control. Uh, For instance, your child has choices that he or she makes. They have friends they choose, teachers you don't control, influences you don't control, books and movies. All these choices are family, those we love, those we sponsor, those we parent, those people in our life, they have a free will. And you can be responsible to someone, but not for them. You are not them. They have a choice. He's reaping the consequences of his own decisions. And the father knew something very important, that nature, God's laws, God's laws of nature, God's laws of cause and effect have a way of disciplining us that other people can't. And the father let him hit rock bottom. But because that happened, uh, they came to stage two, which stage two is reevaluation, 
which often turns to regret, and we even see it can turn to repentance. In verse 17, it says this. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants? How many, anybody have someone you're praying this over? <laughs> that they would come to their senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice the change in attitude. He goes through a process of reevaluation, regret, repentance. He begins to wise up, to come to his senses. What am I doing here? He's sitting in the pig pen, says, this place stinks. My dad's servants get it better than this. And he gets desperate. So he says in repentance, I will go home. And he heads off for home, not for a change of clothes, but for a change of heart. I love the difference between verse 12 and verse 19, where he says in verse 12, Father, give me. But he comes back and says, Father, make me. It's a change of heart. It's a change of, of direction. He's broke. He's saying, I've made a mess. Uh, make me one of your hired servants. What do we do in this stage? While well, you're waiting for someone uh, to come to their senses and reevaluate what to do. I would submit three things to do in this very difficult spot, of this waiting period. Is number one, remember the faithful. If you're taking notes, write that down. Yes, there are those who are disloyal, but there, are there any who have remained faithful? Yes. You see this in 2 Timothy 1.15 where Paul is talking about those who have deserted him and abandoned him. And you see this, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus. So it starts with this exaggeration of everyone has deserted me but then he remembers the faithful. Immediately after saying, they're all gone. But no, there is someone who's faithful, who supported me in the past, who most recently arrived in Rome, diligently sought me out, found me, ministered to me. Paul commends this brother to Timothy. And despite Paul's feelings of being all alone, he goes on to send all these other greetings from, from all these other brothers and sisters that, who had remained faithful. So he wasn't really all alone. He had just gone through a period where he felt that way because many had abandoned him. And this is just a principle in life that we have to learn and remember. That we, human natures, we want to focus on who's not there. I mean, we could sit around and talk about who's not here today. Uh, you, you go to your Bible study, your small group, and uh, all these different things in your life, and, and you can just tend to focus on Who's left? Who's not here? Who's not faithful? Who's deserted me? But there are going to be people in your life who leave. What are you going to choose to focus on? But there are also going to be people in your life that make this seem very real. They've abandoned you, deserted you. They were not faithful to a vow they took, a promise they made, a covenant they signed, uh, people who aren't going to be there for you in the hard times of life. People who turn from the truth, Jesus Christ and his word. And what you see Paul doing here is even though there are people turning from the truth, he's remembering, celebrating, commending the faithful. Do you thank God for the faithful few or moan over the disloyal many? 
And it's more important to thank God for those who have remained faithful to the gospel. Faithful to you, even when times have been hard. And Paul was learning this lesson. Even as he wrote the exaggeration, nobody was with him. He's moving with the movers. And we need to remember those who are supporting us, those who are encouraging us. Second thing I would submit to do in this difficult time uh, when you're waiting for a reevaluation is commit them to God. Things that are out of your control are not out of God's control. And although we may not be able to change a situation, God can change a circumstance. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I just imagine that before the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, when he was persecuting Christians, that there was a Christian who was faithful to the teachings of Jesus that said, pray for your persecutor, pray for your enemy. And there was someone praying for Paul. And now he or she gets to be in on one of the greatest conversion stories of all time in the history of mankind and gets an eternal reward that will not burn up. Even if Paul never converted, the faithfulness of praying and committing that person to God is amazing. Wouldn't you like to be the man or woman who prayed for Paul to be saved? And that's the third thing is what do you do when you're waiting for this time to happen is you never give up praying. Number three, you never give up praying. You pray and pray and never stop. Our children, our friends, our parents are targets from, of the enemy and they need to be prayed for. They need to be prayed for. And one of our chief responsibilities is to pray for them. You wait and you wait and you wait patiently and many of you are doing that right now. And it's hard in the waiting, waiting time. And it takes longer for some. It takes a lot longer for some. But because the father waited, uh, we come to stage three, and that is the return. And what you do in this stage, how you respond to someone who is returning to the truth, is very crucial. It says in verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So before he'd even made it all the way home, he runs off to him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, I just think this kind of spot is funny because he, I mean, kisses him, hugs him. This young man is smelly, (laughs) disgusting, gross. He has just walked home in the desert uh, from living in a pig pen and living in slop and eating slop and he runs to him and embraces him and hugs him. And that's what we do is number one, love them faithfully. Love them faithfully. While his, his father says, it says while he was a long way off, he's filled with compassion. Not when he'd come home and gotten his act together, his life together. He was filled with compassion there and then. The father had never given up hope. And no matter how far they fall, no matter how long you wait, the door is left open for reconciliation. 
I'll say it this way to borrow from last week's crucial message on boundaries. Even though there are boundaries in place, clear boundaries in place, the bridge is not burned. The, the door is not barred. And the door was left open for reconciliation. You love them faithfully. Number two, accept them unconditionally. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. I mean, he, he's at the bottom. But he runs to him, gives him a bear, big bear hug and kisses him. And some of, some of you are saying, well, how can I accept this person without lowering my standards? How can I accept my child when I don't approve of their lifestyle. The problem is we confuse acceptance with approval, and there's a big difference. There's a difference between acceptance and approval. Acceptance says, I love you. I love you because you're made in the image of God. I love you because I love every human being. I love you because of of who you are and who God made you to be. If it's your child, I love you because you are my child. God made you, I love you, but I don't approve of what you are doing. You can accept a person, accept a child without approving of their lifestyle. That's what we are to do. It's what God does with us. God loves me, accepts me unconditionally. There is stuff in my life God does not approve of. There's stuff in your life God does not approve of. You are fully loved and accepted by Christ Jesus. Then look at, at, at the son's confession. This is so crucial because when you accept someone unconditionally, it makes it so much easier for them to fully admit who they are and bring it all out and to humble themselves. Confession's easier when you know you've been accepted. In verse 21, it says this, the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He has come to a place of fully realizing what's happening. It's not that I just run out, ran out of money here. It's that I've sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. Did your parents ever do that? Have you asked for forgiveness? And they say, well, honey, you're going to have to ask for forgiveness from God too. Because <laughs> you sinned against him too. And he comes to a full realization of what's happened here. And it's not that, and I was in a pig pen. It's not that I just ran out of money. It's that. Man, I disregarded the truth. I turned from the truth. I sinned against heaven and against you. And he fully confesses. And what does he get? Number three, forgive them completely. Forgive them completely. Luke 15, 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Don't miss what's happening here. So much symbolism here of what's happening as he's being restored. Bring the best robe. The robe in this Jewish culture was a sign of sonship. It's representing you are back in the family. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was a signet. It's what you signed your name with to any bills. You'd you'd push it in the wax and that signet would loan you money. It's a sign of trust. That trust, I trust you. Sandals on his feet. He's being fully restored into a full relation. And the important thing for us to get here is the father gave him responsibility. He had him accept responsibility when he came home. He did not allow his son to move back in to a codependent relationship. The typical reaction is, I blew it. I made a mistake. I can't take care of my own life. Therefore, I'm abdicating all my rights and authority to you. Please make decisions for me. You please be my boss. And this is why younger people who turn from the truth 
get messed up are such easy targets and prey uh, for cults because they're, they're looking for a father figure who will make all the decisions for them. They think, I, I can't do it. I can't make it like this. And so they look for someone who will take full responsibility for their lives or a group of people who will make all, make all my decisions. And the father knew enough to reject that and the father had him accept responsibility. He would not let him come uh, completely dependent. He loved him faithfully, accepted him unconditionally, and forgave him completely. Now that story has an amazing ending, uh, but there are many situations in our church where the story is not over. And you don't know how they're going to turn out, how the story's going to end. And maybe someone in your life has rejected everything in your life, and they've hurt you deeply, and they've ridiculed what you valued, uh, they've rejected your counsel, they've rebelled against your authority, uh, they're disregarding uh, the truth, and you're hurt, and it's, you're in agony. And it's embarrassing, you tend to take on the blame yourself, you're angry, what did I do, what did I do wrong? But if there's a word of encouragement for us today, I think it's this, and that is that it's not over. The ball game's not over, like your child may be in the third or fourth inning, but the game's not over. And there's still plenty of time for them to reevaluate. Remember, this is the ideal father responding. This is God. This is not some human being. This is what God would do. In fact, this is what God does with us in our rebellion. This parable shows how God deals with us in our own rebellion. That we've taken matters into our own hands. We've all rebelled. But God says, come home. His love for us drove him from heaven to earth to make a way for us. In verse 23, they celebrate. He says, bring, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That this was much bigger than just good and bad. This wasn't my son ran off and did some bad things. No, we are dead without Christ. We are lost without Christ. And the celebration that happens when we come back home to God is we are brought from death to life. It's the picture of Easter. We are brought from lost to found. And when we could have been lost in our rebellion... Jesus gives us this. Let's just finish with the two other parables in Luke 15. It says this, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, uh, we have come to church today because you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is. You sent us the Messiah, and we believe in him. And God, we turn to your word today. It is true. It makes us realize what is wrong. It teaches us what to do right. And God, we praise you for that. We would be lost without you. And so God, thank you for receiving us. Even though we have rebelled, thank you uh, for coming from heaven to earth to make a way for us. And God, we lift up uh, those in our life whom we love so much, who are struggling, um, who have turned uh, from the truth of who you are. But God, today we remember the faithful, that they're not all have turned, and we are not all alone, and we know that you will give us the ability to stand strong and endure in the face of the heartbreak or the pressure. God, we commit that person to you. God, we thank you that it is by grace we are saved. And God, if you can um, save the Apostle Paul, you can save anybody. God, if you can save me, you can save anybody. And God, help us uh, to have a steadfast endurance, patient endurance in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're grateful today uh, for Palm Sunday, for this week, the Passion Week, um, for Good Friday, for Easter Sunday. Lord, we are so grateful for what you have done. We could not have done it. No work could have brought us from death to life. Only Jesus Christ can do that. God, we thank you for searching us. We were the one that was lost, and you found us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.